While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. So, Andrew, if, if you were throwing a party on a Friday or a Saturday, okay, let's say that you were throwing a party, but you also had neighbors who were not at that party. All right. What, I'm still on board with this role play situation. Yeah, Fifty Shades of Parties. What, uh, what time do you think you might wrap that party up as like a so, courtesy to your neighbors? I'm at a party and it's and I've no got no you are there. hosting a party. I'm hosting a party, and I've got friends there and I've got neighbors. This is the scenario that we're in, right? Yes. And what are we doing? Are we just like drinking and having a good time? That's what it or sounds like. I mean, I wasn't loud music. I'm not at this hypothetical party. You are. are we talking about a hypothetical party or are you telling me about something that happened? To I've you? been had. This happened to me. <laughs> I would say that really you should try and stop making noise within like half an hour of midnight, one Ooh. way or the other. Ooh, you are a you are a taskmaster. I'm not. I mean, I'm not going to say that the party has to end, but I'm like I'm like 28, and by the time it's midnight or like one in the morning, I don't have a lot of party left in me. I have like sit and talk like introspectively about things I wouldn't talk about if I was sober, I guess. Okay. That's fair. That's a good, <laughs> but I'm, a I'm good not thing. like, I'm not still tearing it up. I'm not waiting for the drop in my favorite dubstep song at two in the morning anymore. That's what I used <laughs> to do that all the time, but I can't anymore. Yeah. On a Friday or a Saturday, I'll give you till 2 a.m. That, cause that to me, that seems like the end of the party. And that's pretty charitable of you, I think. But So when you need to come downstairs at 2.30 to smoke your cigarettes outside my bedroom window. Are they regular cigarettes or like party cigarettes? Uh, no, these are <laughs> they're candy cigarettes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they're regular cigarettes, but you woke me up with your cigarettes. Okay. Which means it wasn't really cigarettes, it was talking. I... <laughs> Talking kills. Talking kills. Kids. Just sit around quietly. Stop talking. Just smoke your cigarettes quietly. I will say fine. that if if a party is still going on at 2 a.m. and if it's still loud, it's, I mean, in all likelihood, everybody at that party has gotten to the point where they've lost track of time. And it become like every time you look at the clock, it's become some time warp where you're losing hours of your life. That's a fair point. That's They're a fair just point. falling out of your pocket. <laughs> What's all this on the floor? It's just hours of my life. <laughs> well, and the problem with my situation, but let's not move on to the podcast just yet. The problem with my situation is that even if I called the cops on them, which I wouldn't do. They're nice guys. I wouldn't do that right away. But even if I did, I'd have to answer the door. Like the door, like they'd still have to go through the front door. You know what I mean? 
Like, I'm not just calling them all my next-door neighbors. They're my upstairs neighbors. Well, and then, then if you have to let the cops in in the first place, there is no... The whole passing the buck to the cops thing didn't work. Right, yeah. Like, they, the, everybody knows who called the cops instead of just suspecting. Yeah, the, the guy cops. standing next to the cops <laughs> called Like, the, the upset-looking guy in his bathrobe. He's like tapping his foot and looking at his oversized watch like a cartoon character. Yep, that's me. I am a living cartoon character. Uh, Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. I'd like to apologize for my voice and potentially any of my behavior on this podcast because (laughs) I am uh, currently laden with some sort of cold. Now, I also get I I get very dramatic when I get sick. I get a little a little pathetic, uh, a little needy. Sure, sure. I've I've been told that that I am prone to that also. Uh, and I also set as as Andrew informed me earlier. I set the egg timer on this podcast. I took some cold medicine a few minutes ago. Yeah, uh, so we've got like twenty minutes. We're tops good. We're good. We're just of fine. Talk that's gonna make any sense at all. I know this book. We're good. Okay. But, Andrew, for our listeners, uh, what book did you read? Okay, this week I read To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. And universally, the reaction that I've gotten when I've told people I'm reading this is, how have you not read that yet? Did you not go to school? What happened? Um, I went to school on the first day, and then I never came back <laughs> for the rest of the year. Oh, I Which, see. for those of you who've read the book, I just dropped a sick reference on you, so deal with it. What's, which one is he? He's not a Yule kid, right? He's he is a the, Yule kid. Is he? Yeah. Okay. He's yeah. the one with the bugs on him, right? Yeah, we're going we're gonna to come back to the Yules in a little bit. Okay. So, but, uh, yeah, what just, you... just for, for those of you who read along at home, and you should be, um, that's a little, little Kill Mockingbird humor for you. <laughs> All right. So, all right. Harper Lee is kind of a cool, one of the cooler authors I think we've had lately because she's one of those ones who she wrote this book and that was the book she wrote. That was it, dude. That was the only book. The entirety of her body of work. It was published in 1960. And, um, you know, there, there have been. Various urban legends and comments that she's made. I mean, she's one, she's one of those uh, reclusive authors, too. I think maybe Salinger, J.D. Salinger, would be the closest. The best part about reclusive. Sort of person that we've, we've talked about ever. Yeah, <laughs> the best part about reclusive Harper Lee that I found is that she handwrites all of her I will not grant your interview letters. Aw. Uh, she, that's like really reclusive but also it's got that personal touch yeah it's kind of down home you know um, but a, she told the New York Times in 2006 that if she created a form letter for it it would just say hell no <laughs> <laughs> so yeah she wrote this in and published it in 1960 and um, there were a couple of books that she started and then gave up on i mean i i I guess she's published a few short essays since to kill a mockingbird i didn't really read any of them um yeah there was a second novel called the long goodbye that was never finished and then 
in the 80s, she started a nonfiction book about uh, apparently an Alabama serial murderer, but uh, was not satisfied with how it was going. So she put it away. So, I mean, I'm sure in the back of a bunch of scholars minds, like she is going to pass away and her estate is going to uncover all this, like this great unfinished work. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that, that's like the, the hope, but I don't think. Like, how often has that worked out and people have been, like, really blown away with... <laughs> well, we were talking about that with Salinger. I don't, I don't like how yeah. he has some... He had some Catcher in the Rye sequel in the works. Sounds disastrous. Pitcher in the Rye. Oh, stop it. Stop it. Stop <laughs> it. So, um, yeah, Harper Lee... Um, she was friends with Truman Capote, which I think is cool. I did not know that. I didn't she know that. She apparently, you know, heard character has a has a major role in the movie capote and um in real life she uh helped him research his book in cold blood mm-hmm. that's that's something that she's known for and i think they were also childhood friends like there's a there's a character in to kill a mockingbird named dill who um who was supposedly modeled on on young truman capote so yeah and we we might chart this as we talk about the book but there's a lot in the book that is from her life. Um, yeah. She kind of We're, denied it being purely autobiographical, but I think the quote is something that like, it's a, it's an example of a, of a writer writing what they know and writing it well is her quote yes. or something like that. Uh, there's yeah. lots of stuff from her life in Alabama. Should, should write a, uh, an author should write about what he knows and write truthfully is the quote from her. There you go. I got it close. Anyway, what's this book about? So this book is about, I mean, it's about a few different things. It's about growing up in a small Southern town in the, in the great depression. It's about race. Um, it's about gender a little bit. Okay. Um, it's about childhood. It's about, I don't know, mysteries. It's <laughs> wait, stuff going wait on. a second. <laughs> All right, why don't you give me the quick the quick setup, the pitch on what this book what's the setup? Where are we? Here's the here's the the basic plot summary. And the the nature of the book is that it's, you know, everything everything eventually ties together, but there are a lot of small little vignettes and characters probably who we're not going to talk about just because it would be too hard to cram them all into a 45 or 50 minute show. But um so your main character here and the one who you hear about all the events through is um, a little girl. She's six when the story starts and nine by the time it ends. Her name is uh, Jean Louise Finch and everybody calls her Scout. That's her nickname. Yep. Um, she's got a brother named Jem, J-E-M, and um, her father named Atticus Finch, who is, who is a middle-aged lawyer. And then they also live with um, well, she doesn't live with them, but she she is there most of the time. They're um, maid, I guess, named Calpurnia. Isn't there isn't um, their aunt around also? Yeah, for like the back half of the book, their um, aunt Alexandra or Alexandria moves in. Aunt Alexandra, yeah, right the first time. Yeah. Um, okay. And so the the story is about Scout's childhood at first but then as you know as you meet more characters and as you back away from the town of Maycomb which is the the place where the book 
you know, happens. And it, the town kind of is a character in and of itself in its own weird way. But um, as you as you back out and you get a bigger picture of what is going on in this small town, um, the book is like the it's centered around um, Scout's father, Atticus, defending this black man named Tom Robinson in court. And um, he is accused of raping a white woman. And even though Atticus basically, I mean, even even if it, it all boils down to he said, she said, I mean, obviously there is enough reasonable doubt in this case that he should be acquitted. But because we're in a town in the South in the 30s and the jury is all white and it had to do with a crime, you know, a black person doing something to a white person, they uh, he is he is pronounced guilty and imprisoned and then shot later when he tries to escape yep Yep. so i'm that's that's the crux of everything pretty much okay so you you've read this book before like what what stuff do you want to talk about like how long has it been since you since you i i read it fairly regularly it's it's one of the things um it's one of the units that we do in our theater outreach program on a regular basis Um, and so what do you in that context, like, why is this a book that you go back to a lot of the time? So in that context, the main goal of that project is uh, to create a staged trial of Tom Robinson um, mm-hmm. and to stage that whole event. Now, granted, we have to kind of shoehorn in some exposition about who people are because you're, you know, yes, you're staging it in English class so people know what the book is, but we always use it as an opportunity to teach kids about exposition. Mm-hmm. Um, but the main thing is like looking at that story and kind of examining that type of prejudice and examining, uh, why those people are the way they are or were the way they were. One of the, mm-hmm. one of the most interesting parts of, of that adaptation when it goes well is we have them talk about the jury, which I kind of probably is a good place to talk about make home the character for you, right? Like who are yeah, these so people mean, and, and why is this an important event in their, in their town? So the thing with make home is that it is a small, it's a small town and it's a place where even if you look at the long term, you know, over the long haul, it's a place where not a lot of people come in and not a lot of people leave. Mm-hmm. So you've got all these multi-generational families and it's very ingrained in the, I guess, the culture of the town. Like the last name that you have is considered to be representative of your character, basically. Yes. Yes, so yes. so the Finches are very respectable and they and they read and they're and they're. I don't know. I I wouldn't say they're well to do, but they they are respected, but they don't have any money. So that's their that's their like character. Um the Cunninghams are even poorer, but they won't take charity. Um and then you've got this other big family called the Yules and they nobody trusts them as far as they could throw them and they don't take good care of themselves and they uh live on welfare and they're just you know, kind of generally reviled all around, and for and for pretty good reason. <laughs> and don't they don't they live on the edge of town, kind of near? They live behind the dump if you need. 
if you need some like symbolism, they live behind the dump. They frequently scrounge around in the dump to find food and building materials. And yeah, in, I, I guess in just about every sense possible from, from this like symbolic stuff that sets them up as parasites on the town to the actual parasites that they're all infested with. Oh, like gross. They're very, oh no. They're, they're, they're very much set up to be, I guess, the bad, bad guys or the, the people who you can't sympathize with, pretty much. Now, most of this is all kind of set up in the earlier part of the book, though, right? Through the experiences Scout has as a kid. Yeah, right. Like like a lot of what you find out about these families and where you find out that, you know, your family name dictates a lot of stuff about you is um it's Scout's first day in first grade. She's got a new teacher who has never, you know, been to Macomb before. And um Is that Miss Maudie? Is that who that is? Um no, that's I believe that is her neighbor who lives across the street who who's probably one of the characters who we won't talk about a lot, even though I did like her. Oh, I like this that whole I like this book a lot. It's a good book like this is a great book and i hate that i have not read it ever but <laughs> it was really good um okay sorry so You're yeah cool. scouts scouts in first grade and this teacher is like wondering things about certain students like this one kid doesn't have any lunch and she says well you i'll give you a nickel and you can get lunch and you can pay me back and scout stands up and says well you don't you don't understand he's a cunningham and he will never be able to pay you back and he's not going to take your money because he knows he's never going to be able to pay you back and then there's this dirty filthy kid and the teacher says you are going to wash tomorrow before you come to school and and it comes to light that he's a yule and they only ever show up on the first day because the truant officer makes them and then nobody can keep them in school after that (laughs) so great so yeah, you you just you find out all these things about these different families. Well, and what I like about those two instances is that they're ways to deliver these types of characters that I still find the details very unique. Like there's something yes, there is, you know, there's a dirty kid in Charlie Brown, you know, but and there's there's certainly the poor family is a thing, is a trope, if you want to call it a trope, in as much as mm. poverty exists. Um, I mean, pretty much everybody in this town is hurting. poor to some degree. Yeah, yeah. Because it's the Depression, and it's a small town in the in Alabama. So, But that, that mix of, of poverty and honor feels very unique to that character. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that, if I hear that, I'm not going to think of a different book or a different story first if you describe a character like that to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what do you... So we haven't... One of the other major characters that we haven't talked about is Boo Radley. Boo Radley. Um, Boo Radley is important at the beginning and he kind of disappears in the middle and then he comes back and is very important at the end. Okay. <laughs> would you say that's would you say that's accurate? I would say that is wholly accurate. What is his so, what is his deal? There are there's this family who lives behind the finches. I think it's behind them, right? Yeah, it sounds right. Um and they are the Radleys and they really um I are they the ones who they call foot washing Baptists or are they 
are they just religious in some other way that the town doesn't really understand and so mistrusts? I think it might be the latter, but I don't okay. recall. <laughs> yeah, there's this there's this one family who's that they're referred to as foot foot washing Baptists, and that apparently is code for like they think any enjoyment of anything on earth is a sin and you should quit it. <laughs> oh no. There's yeah, they're they're um their neighbor, Miss Maudie, grows flowers. And so there's this one scene where some of the foot washing Baptists drive by her house and yell at her for having all these flowers. Oh, no. Yeah, it this is. Book, I'm looking it up right now. It's so great. It is the Radleys. The Radleys are uh, foot washing Baptists. So they they are already sort of inclined to keep to themselves because they don't go to the same church as anybody else in town. And um and the father of the family, you know, he goes to he goes to town to work every day, but he doesn't really talk to anybody. And they all they all are very insular, I guess. And um, and they've got this son named named Arthur Radley, but everybody calls him Boo Radley. And at some point he allegedly like stabs his mother, I think, in the thigh with scissors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because he's like sitting he's, around cutting up newspapers or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's sort of a an unbalanced kid it sounds like anyway but after after this happens the town gets all up in arms about it he basically disappears from the public eye and is shut up you know boo riley is shut up in the radley house for like the next 20 or 30 years like a really long time and i don't um, think so that's what i like about that is it's a really good riff on which is obviously something that's obviously over a century old at this point of like that weird house on the block. The old Radley place. The old Radley place. Like, <laughs> I think when I was growing up, there was maybe, there was one house that was like, who lives up there? You always have that trope, and it's established really well in this book, is there's that there's that one yard where if you throw a Frisbee or something over the fence, you are not getting that Frisbee back. Yeah, it's, like, the, it's nobody, the Sandlot house. It is the Sandlot house. Except not every book has, like, Darth Vader, blind Darth Vader inside with a big dog. That's a that's a deep, deep reference to when did the Sandlot come out? Like 95, I'm going to guess. Yeah, to the 1993 children's movie, The Sandlot. It's not a deep so that's, cut. That's People good. know what The Sandlot is, cut. please. We're talking about um, To Kill a Mockingbird. So... <laughs> So when they're, you know, they're, they're kids, Scout and Jem and their friend Dill, um, develop this sort of fascination with the Radley place, because of course, if it's mysterious and they have their little kids with active imaginations and nothing else to do all summer, they're going to work this up to be some great mystery in their minds. And they're going to be curious and they're going to want to, they're going to want to, you know, figure it out so they they want to see boo radley and yeah the whole game is to like, get him to come out yeah like jim goes up on the porch and hits the side of the house once and they try to sneak into the house to get a glimpse of him once and and um nathan radley who is uh i think he's not the father i think he's like an older brother or something yeah the father is dead i believe yeah but he like comes out and shoots a shotgun in the air to scare him away. And, um, and yeah, but, but, um, you know, so they, they do this for a while. And then in a tree on the Radley property in a little, um, like knot hole, I guess they start to find 
these things that are left in there. Like there's a stick of gum, there's a couple of pennies and there's some, you know, there's some indication that somebody in this house like knows who they are and is trying to communicate with them. Like he carves little soap figurines of them. That's once. so creepy. It's the creepiest. And then it's a little, it's a little creepy. It's like endearing, but not here. Really. I saw you playing outside my window. I made effigies I made, of you out of soap. I made soaps of you. I made soap you. I'm trying. Okay. So tell me, Craig, is there any acceptable circumstance where somebody who you kind of knew could come up to you with a soap version of you and you would be okay with it? Is there any scenario where you'd be okay with it? Well, okay. You've put a stipulation kind of new. So this is someone that I, I know they exist. It can't be like, it can't be like your mom. Okay. Well, like if, if my if mom, your mom gave me a soap figurine <laughs> of myself, I'd be weirded out. <laughs> mom, what are you doing with your time? Took up Whitland. <laughs> no big deal. I took up soap Whitland. My hands are real clean. No splinters. No. If someone gave me a soap figurine, oh my God, I think I would hit them with it. I think I would take it. You would throw them throw it at them and run away. That's yeah, probably about <laughs> correct. I don't think that they're if I gave you a soap figurine, what would you do? I would have to we'd have to take a break yeah, for a bit. <laughs> I think That's that's welcome yeah, welcome to Overdue be... and Overdue also two solo podcasts by the guys who gave themselves soap figurines. Overdue is on hiatus while we try to parse our feelings about these soaps. Like what is happening? Am I supposed to clean myself with myself? Like what is that? Yeah, like, is it something you put up for display? Do you use it? Is it like a like a butter turkey? You're you're supposed to just use it, but it only looks nice there at the beginning, or what? Well, and I don't know how soap works, but if you put soap, wait what? No, wait. I don't know why <laughs> soap is always clean. That's what I'll say. Okay. But if you gave me a soap doll of myself that had been inside a tree, I wouldn't use it. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. I wouldn't rub myself with tree soap. <laughs> so they, they are morph, kind of... How does this book morph from a story about tree soap into one of the most enduring uh, civil rights <laughs> books of our Yeah, era? It's, it's a little... Uh, <laughs> how does it, it takes, manage that? It takes, it takes a winding path. Okay. Here's the thing about the book that I think really resonates is that Scout's perspective is a really fascinating one and it's always it's like no matter what is happening to her it's always really interesting to read and i'm gonna steal some probably from something i i read about the book but i think it summed up the way i felt about scout's voice is that she is simultaneously telling it from the perspective of you know a young child but filtered through the understanding of events that would come later and that and she does drop every once in a while even though you never see her in the book when she's like older than nine every once in a while she'll drop a reference to future events which kind of lets you know that it is being written by an adult scout 
or you know ostensibly it's being told from the perspective of an adult scout like she she talks about how bored she is in school and she says of her career in school that it's basically 12 years of of boredom and she didn't think that's what the state wanted her to get out of it but that's what she got out of it (laughs) yeah i know that she was um when she wrote the book lee that was actually one of the things that critics were kind of split on um the Atlantic Monthly reviewer uh, found the narrative voice implausible, calling it a six-year-old with the prose style of a well-educated adult. And I and that's not untrue, but well, I don't understand why you wouldn't like that. <laughs> well, know. I've read books where I found that uh, distracting, almost because sometimes because the voice is like too erudite. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or or it doesn't seem to be a book about that type of perspective, whereas I, this book is very much about reflecting on a certain period in time. But what what I think helps is that even though you've got this this adult voice telling you what's happening, it's still telling you what is happening to like a six, seven, eight year old yeah. tomboyish little girl who <laughs> who is like not interested in wearing a dress and she doesn't want to be a lady and she thinks and you know the worst thing that her brother can say to her is that she's acting more like a girl all the time oh, man those <laughs> those couple chapters where jem starts to pull away from scout because he's like growing up and becoming a quote-unquote man as much as yeah. ever he yeah ever that, kind of, that kind of hurts a little bit and she doesn't know what to do about it because like dill is not her at least initially when they meet him, because he's like a cousin of theirs, right? Or something like that? Um, not a cousin so much. I think more like a neighbor's that's neighbor's right. nephew or something. That's right. Comes to visit comes to visit for the summers. That her relationship with Dill initially is one of like he's an also ram. Like he's like he is there to exist as their sidekick. And mm-hmm. then as Jim pulls away, she kinda has to recalibrate her friendship with Dill and, and I know that that's hard for her. Yeah, a little bit, and 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 it's hard for her too when Dill wants to hang out with Jem instead of her. So yeah, I mean, you you get all these things about childhood that are really that really ring true and are really believable, and that's that's one of the things I think that helps the voice not be distracting. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, like this this I think would be a boring book if it were told from the perspective of a young child. With the understanding of a young child, because there's going to be a lot of stuff like, you know, rape, race that goes straight over her head. And the, and the book actually makes that point a couple times is that um, Scout and Dill specifically don't yet understand why they're supposed to dislike black people and treat them as as anything other than people. Yeah, that's that's really one of the ways that the book handles that kind of beautifully kind of setting up her relationship with Calpurnia as her relationship think, with yeah. any adult that annoys her, you know. Yeah, and I think that's that is why I think that's why it's being told from the perspective of a child, frankly, is that it's got to be like clearly you have like Atticus who is an adult who is a little ahead of his time in terms of how he views human beings. Um, you know, cuz cuz he's he's uh, he's assigned this tom robinson case like it like he's appointed as tom robinson's public defender but he takes it you know willingly like he's not just doing it because he has to do it he's well he's doing he it believes he in what he's doing do and yeah and he's and he's so even keeled so much of the time and that 
when he does like when his facade does break down you're supposed to know how important that is because he, because it happens so rarely and so one of those breaks is where he calls anybody who would treat a black person as like different or beneath him is trash yeah like that's what he, that's what he says he calls them trash so um yeah do you want to talk about yeah i think the, for a little bit i th- i do yeah i just i just wanted to close that thought by saying yeah i think that's it's told from the perspective of a child because that innocence i guess is important it, well yeah it's important not only to to kind of keep the book from lecturing right mm-hmm. and it also is important because some of that innocence is going to get lost and that's what the book's about yeah, um right. there's a there's a naivete and there's a there's a hope for a certain type of human behavior that unfortunately the book is going to tell you doesn't always happen mm-hmm. um, so let's talk about atticus because he's part of that too how do you feel? Tell me what you think about Atticus. I want. I've been talking for a while, so I want you to. I want you to jump in because he's. I, he's ostensibly the protagonist of the book, right? But you don't get stuff from his perspective. He's not even around all the time. Like you are, you do follow Scout around, but I think it becomes clear by the midway point that Atticus is actually the one you're supposed to have your eye on the whole time. Yeah, because he's got this interesting code. I mean, one of the other, one of the main things about him is his his sense of honor and his sense of duty but he's also got he's in this interesting situation where he is like the man of his own house but he doesn't really feel it i don't know maybe it's just because it's from scout's perspective but he feels kind of absent at times not all the time um because he certainly has his moments where where he and scout hang out together or you know read together or whatever it is you keep talking. I'm going to try and pull up a really good passage from early in the book that I think sums up what you're talking about. Okay. Um, but there's all these women around him who seem to know what's best for him. Now, his wife passed away, um, and so there's this kind of... It's not... He hasn't remarried or anything like that. And um, and this happened um, within Jem's memory, but Scout does not remember. Yeah, does not remember so this happened, you know, this happened... Maybe ha maybe like four or five years before the action of the book starts. Yeah. Uh so he's this kind of he isn't what he I'm trying to sum it up. I mean what's really interesting is that chapter where he shoots that dog. Um, which there's like a rabid dog coming down the street. And and when you read that chapter the first time, it kind of feels like it comes out of nowhere, like it's this random essay anecdote kind of story and i think parts of the book are like that mm-hmm. parts of the book are kind of because they're based on parts of her life harper lee's life they do read as shorter essays that she may have published differently or, or working on and then kind of found a way to weave them together yeah like everything everything does eventually come around to being thematically relevant i think but yeah you're right that there are a lot of anecdotes that feel a little bit like short stories in the way that they play out and in the way where you get a sense of all the characters, even though, you know, even whether you've read the preceding passages or whether you read the following ones or not. Yeah, exactly. They stand, they stand well on their, their own. Um, here's, I found the quote about, um, about Atticus oh, yeah. that I wanted to, uh, Gem and I found our father satisfactory. He played with us, read to us and treated us with a courteous detachment. <laughs> yeah, that's, that sounds about right. Like, 
whenever he actually has to discipline them, it's it's very bizarre for both them and him. He seems to just wish that they were adults that he could just well, talk to. I don't know about that. I mean, I think he he shoots straight with them and he doesn't he doesn't want to like he doesn't tiptoe around stuff. Like that that's part of his code, I think, is that he needs to be able to look them in the eye. Yes. Like more than more than anything because they're all he has and he's all they have and like he maybe is not father of the year. Like he's he's not around all the time, certainly. Mm-hmm. But he really he really cares what they think of of him i guess like in a, in a in a good way like not in a not in a vain way but just in a you do you know what i mean is no this... i know exactly what you mean i think like the uh his sister is always ragging on him about how he kind of lets scout run around and do whatever and be a tomboy and oh she'll never be a lady or you know that mm-hmm. kind of stuff and i think you're right that's part of him just not wanting to bs scout like if that's who she's going to be as long as she's not causing trouble or, you know, doing wrong by people, who's he to tell her otherwise? Right. He does not, he doesn't concern himself with all the stuff that you're supposed to do. Yes. Like in society. Yes. Like the stuff that you're supposed to do, but there isn't maybe a great reason for why you're supposed to do it. You're just supposed to do it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Which I think is part of why I find him such a satisfying character, even though like, he's not you know he's not perfect well and and if you want to you want to blow that out thematically like i know that lee harper lee has said uh in one or two interviews that or at least in writing about the book because people always bugger about the book that of course she do. was when you when you do one book yeah and it's as famous and well regarded as this one yeah that's what people, that's are, what gonna people are gonna ask you about, about. <laughs> um she made she was like Knowing that it was a big comparison, but she was drawing some comparisons to Jane Austen in the sense that she was trying to expose certain hypocrisies, specifically hypocrisies of manner and kind of social mores that aren't necessarily useful. And as you talk about Atticus just now, that he is the he is the one who cuts through that. And then you have the kids who don't who don't know why any of those exist. Right. And then it, yeah, there's a there's an interesting. I'm sorry to jump yeah, in go ahead. and interrupt your thought, like right in the middle. But there's there's an interesting sequence where her aunt is making her attend, like a ladies' social gathering. Oh yeah, and this is one of the areas where you kind of get a sense as to why she likes to behave like a tomboy instead of like a quote unquote lady. Is that you know you've got people who gossip. And you've got people who ask questions to like trap you into, into making a, into being the butt of their joke or something. And she finds the way that the men talk to each other, you know, Atticus and the town sheriff and and other people. She finds it much more straightforward. And she, she thinks that the ladies are often hypocrites in the way that they, you know, the way that they deal with each other. So how do you feel about the trial? Let's talk about that. We've been talking about Atticus a little bit. Let's, let's be more be more specific because well, there's a lot of there. That's a very pivotal scene, and there's a lot of stuff that goes goes on. Well, how do you think it was handled? Perhaps how do you think? I don't. 
by Lee or like in the in the universe? Oh, I will I'd pick one. I don't know. I was I was intimating uh, by the author, but you can talk about the characters if you're more invested in that. Um, it's very. I guess it's very cut and dry. Like, I'm not gonna say it's more obvious than it needs to be, but it's set up with as little ambiguity as possible. Like you have the evil family members who get up on stage to testify against Tom Robinson and they're very nasty and they're very evasive and they don't have their stories straight. Yeah. And they're a little cartoonish. They're a little cartoonish. I mean, a little bit, they're a little cartoon hillbilly, but I mean, that's the, that's, that's who they've been established as being and it's who they have to be for the story to work. No, you're right. That's (laughs) like, I don't, I don't think the story is as resonant if, you have a lot of sympathy for especially the father like you do get you do get to the point where you have a little bit of sympathy for um, Mayella Mayella who is you know the ostensible rape victim you're right but, but I mean it, it comes out over the course of the trial and the version of events that you know Lee clearly intends you to believe is that Mayella invited Tom Robinson into the house under false pretenses to bust up a shiverobe yep and man that shiverobe. She, yeah, I know, right? She jumps on him and her father sees and he runs away because of course if a black man is accused of doing anything to a white woman that's just it. Like he didn't run because he was guilty, he ran because that's why you that's the only way you have any chance of staying alive coming out of yeah, this. Yeah. And um Mayla's father beats her up pretty badly and um and Tom Robinson's a scapegoat, basically. Yes. Um, yeah, I think. So, I mean, that that's clearly the version of events you're supposed to believe, and you're like leading up to the trial, you're kind of led to believe it's going to be a hearsay, he said, she said thing, and once you're in there, that's pretty clearly not what's happening. Like Lee clearly wants you to believe one version of events, and you know it's probably the true version of events, but it's you know it's it's very it's very cut and dry yeah she doesn't leave it up to you to interpret whether or not atticus was right you know that's i mean the the only real question that you the reader are supposed to come away from the book with does not happen till later and we can talk about that when we get past the trial okay um i don't know i don't know what else necessarily talk about in the trial how do you feel about the the guy with the fake drink that guy oh yeah there there's a what's do you remember his name oh I'm, i wish his i name could is remember me. he's a pretty minor character i wish i could remember um, off the top of my head um you're gonna look it up but he's uh the guy who sits outside the courthouse drinking out of a paper bag and he kind of acts drunk the whole time well his his deal is that he you know he's a white guy but he lives um with the black people yes and so he is an in town yeah, he's and he's an outcast, and whenever he does come into town, he's drinking out of a paper bag. He's like stumbling from side to side, and all the townspeople are like, "Well, he's a he's a drunk, and his wife killed herself, and so that's why he, you know, that's the explanation for his behavior." And so at some at a at one point in the trial, Dill starts to cry, and it's you know it's because of the thing we talked about earlier. It's because he is too young to understand why all these white people are you know are so 
self-satisfied and like treating these black people so poorly even though they're just people yeah it's during the examination of of tom by the yeah by so the prosecutor. so he, dill and scout briefly leave you know for dill to collect himself and this you know this this guy whose name i just wish that i could remember and i'm never <laughs> going to be able to um you know gives dill a drink out of his paper bag and it turns out that he's just drinking coca-cola yep and he lives you know he lives with black people because he wants to live with black people and he's like one of the adults who gets it but you know for because image is so important to these people and because you're supposed to act the way you're supposed to act he you know he uses the fake whiskey to give people something that they can latch on to and believe about them if they you know if they have to is that Dolphus raymond i believe yes. that name that name sounds Dolphus familiar. raymond yes. Yes, yeah. that's who it is. And he's only really even a thing in that, you know, in that specific passage. There are a lot of characters who are like that, who are sort of around for one specific anecdote, and maybe they pop up one or two other times with they they aren't major players. But that's such an insightful thing. Like the, I'm going to embrace a fault that isn't really mine so that other people can sleep better about my existence. Like well, I mean, not just. I mean, clearly he's doing it for himself on some level. Well, yeah, because it because he's. I mean, he's going to be. He's going to be right? out. He's going to be outcast and ostracized either way. Yeah, he might as well do it in a way that makes the white people not give him a lot of trouble. Yes, because like as soon as, as soon as it becomes clear that Atticus is defending Tom Robinson because he wants to, like. All the people in the town start saying really nasty things about him to, yeah, to Jem and Scout. Point. Um, and they they start kind of, and and the people who support him start telling him he should really not do it. Um, yeah, but um, all right, you want to move on? Yeah, I guess the last thing to talk about is so, you know, so so the trial goes down the way it goes down. Like clearly, Tom Robinson is is. If he's not innocent, then there is a pretty reasonable doubt that he did it. You know, he that he raped male. Yeah. And um, but he gets sent to jail anyway, and he gets killed. But the thing about the way the trial goes down is that Atticus defends him so well that where it would normally take a jury five minutes to go in and say, "Okay, black guy did it. Let's go home," it took them hours of debating to to reach the same conclusion. Yes. And. In Maycomb, that is enough of a baby step forward, and you know everybody, of course, knows knows what that means. Like they know what to read into it. That um, Ewell goes home with egg on his face, like he he does not. Yeah, it's a pyrrhic victory, which is like kind he of is, fascinating. He is dis- he is disgraced in his in his victory by his behavior in court and by the fact that his story obviously didn't stack up. And, you know, obviously he beat up his daughter, so. Yeah, that's the thing is they can, I, I would imagine that the version you you talk about in Make Home at that point is uh, is that, well, Atticus didn't prove that Tom didn't rape that girl, but he did prove that Bob hit her, like, with the, the handedness of Tom. And, yeah. you know, Tom yeah, is, yeah. has a crippled left hand and Bob Ewell's left-handed, and that's like a whole big thing. Yeah, so it's one of those deals where like you're not on trial here, but but everybody knows what you did. <laughs> you totally hit your daughter, and and it's reasonable to believe that a bunch of other stuff followed that. Uh, yeah. And so, 
what that becomes is it wasn't whether or not those guys were to convict Tom. It was how long it was going to take for them to run out of courage to not convict him. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And that's kind of, that was always going to be the case. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously Atticus is upset by the way everything goes down, but there are, you know, there are other characters who say in Maycomb, that is, you know, that's, it's something that it took that long basically. And that's, I, I, you know, you still see that kind of baby step, stuff happening today you know we're we're still taking those tiny incremental steps away from racism and sexism and and um you know discrimination against people of different um sexualities and, and whatever i'm i stumbled over that yeah it's okay badly. it's hard it's well there isn't a there's i mean you can use homophobia but it doesn't quite sound right because yeah i mean i think people understand that that's an umbrella term for a lot of things but it you know it doesn't nearly encompass all, well and all the stuff that goes on one of the one of the interviews i said it earlier um was like in 2000- homophobia and transphobia yeah. and all this in 2006 when harper lee gave that interview the times it was because uh she was attending some essay contest uh where kids were responding to the book and one of the things that she said was that they always find new things in it and that you know one of the essays was comparing the book to uh the murder of a of a man because he was gay like a decade Mm -hmm. prior um and that kind of the the social the innocent social outcast or the innocent uh pariah or whatever it is 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 the kind of the main theme of the book i would say yeah you know what what's a mockingbird andrew what's why is it a sin to kill a mockingbird the you know the title of the book it's it's a metaphor and um so it's at one point um the kids get these air rifles for christmas Mm. and they you know they want to learn how to shoot them and it and it and Atticus tells them basically that they can kill crows all they want, but it's a sin to kill a mockingbird because a mockingbird, you know, all it does is make beautiful music and it it doesn't, it hasn't done anything to anybody. And um, obviously, you know, that, that is set up as a metaphor for the trial of Tom Robinson and his eventual death is that he didn't, he didn't do anything to anybody. <laughs> and yet they, you know, society basically strung him up and killed him anyway well and neither did boo radley right yeah boo right. radley's that's a mockingbird the... there's plenty of mockingbirds yeah that's um i want to okay that 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 is true but i want to get to the end of the book because that's when boo radley comes back all right is um you are so, so excited about this book i love it i like this i like the book a lot so after the trial goes down, there is, you know, the, the, that's the crux of it. But then you're, you come off of the trial and there is this lingering tension because Ewell is sort of harassing people who had anything to do with his, with his disgrace. Like he, he stalks Tom Robbins's wife. He breaks into the judge's house and freaks him out. And he, you know, he threatens Atticus on the street. And so Jem and Scout are walking home in the, you know, it's it's pitch dark. They're walking home from the school play. Halloween and they, play, which is great. Yeah, the Halloween play. And they realize that some somebody is following them. And originally they think it's like, you know, one of their 
schoolmates because he had jumped out and scared them earlier. But um, it ends up being Yule and he attacks the kids. And um, and they are they are saved kind of in the dark by none other than Boo Radley, who's who's disappeared for a while because, you know, as the kids get a little older and as their attention shifts to the trial and stuff, they are they are less fascinated by him than, you know, than they once were. But uh, Ewell is is found dead under this tree with a knife in him. Oh, no. And Atticus. Not scissors, just a knife. No, it's a knife. Okay. It's like a kitchen knife. Um, and Atticus, you know, Atticus thinks that Jem did it in self-defense. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't like blame him or anything, but he thinks that's the way things happen. Yeah. And the sheriff thinks, I mean, the sheriff thinks that Boo did it, but, you know, he doesn't want to bring him out into the open and make him go, you know, make this, make this natural recluse go through all the stuff for, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like he's, he obviously is not going to hurt. He's not going to hurt anybody for no reason. Like he doesn't, he doesn't mean any harm to anybody. So, you know, he's not going to drag him through the, the literal and figurative trial that he would have to go through. Yes, of course. Um, you know, where he accused of murder. So the sheriff maintains over Atticus, you know, over his protests that, um, Ewell fell on the knife himself and, and killed himself in the dark. But Boo Radley is the one who saved him. It all comes yes. back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's, a, that's like the, that's the meaning of the phrase. I mean, it's still, it's still a little oblique. I guess. Yeah, it's not. It's not a. It's not a perfect allegory, right? No, I mean, the fact right. that Tom gets shot is okay. That's pretty. That's as close as. <laughs> it's a little on the nose, I guess. But I think the the point obviously is that it has a couple different meanings. You know, the whole which we're not going to talk about, which we're not going to have time to talk about, is that whole uh, chapter where Jem is visiting what's her face, the woman who's addicted to morphine, mm-hmm. um, and just kind of like learning how to treat someone who has troubles you don't understand and yeah. and assuming that they're this terrible person or assuming that they are a recluse or assuming that they are a brute uh, and then like really seeing them for who they are mm-hmm. is kind of the point of the book. Yeah. Um, so there's a, there's an interesting quote from uh, Flannery O'Connor, who's another, you know, Southern writer. Um, who, when the book came out, she said that it was pretty good for a children's book. Um, what did she say? Well, that's that's kind of condescending. She said, "I think for a child's book, it does all right. It's interesting that all the folks that are buying it don't know they're reading a child's book. Someone ought to say what it is." <laughs> Do you think it's a child's book, Andrew? I think. It can be read and understood by children. Okay, fair. But and I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try and draw that line here. I don't think. But you know, at, at some point in between, like Doctor Seuss and I don't know, like this book or the Lord of the Rings or something that that's considered to be maybe at like the fifth or sixth or eighth grade reading level or something. There is a point at which books just start to be books. Okay. 
I think. And maybe maybe some books have like simpler themes and are more straightforward, which is maybe why the courtroom scene in this book is as, you know, feels as simple and, and clean cut as it does. Yeah. But I mean, if it has something to say and it says it clearly and well, like there's, I I think sometimes there's this tendency among critics to want things to be complicated and you need to be able to understand it. Yeah. Even though it's not necessarily obvious at first glance, like what is what you're supposed to take away from it. That's fair. So I guess I could see like in that context why people would call it a children's book, but in the sense that it, you know, that it's still something that people can read and get something from now. It's just, you know, it's just a book. Like even, even like the Harry Potter novels or something on, on that level are, you know, they're sold to children and marketed to children and there are toys and things, but you know, so many adults have read them and enjoyed them and gotten something out of them that I I think I would argue in favor of them just being, you know, they're just books. Just books. <laughs> and we don't need to we don't need to draw these weird partitions between them, I guess. All right. That's fair. So suck on that, Flannery O'Connor. Yeah, and if you want to tell us to suck on something, you can Whoa. email us at <laughs> overduepod at gmail dot com. Um you can also tell us on our Twitter feed at twitter.com slash overdue pod and on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash overdue pod. Our website is overduepodcast.com. It has links to all of our older episodes. It has Amazon links to the books that we have read and some of the books we will read. You can click on them if you want to give us a little kick back. You can also you sound like the cold medicine is starting to kick. Yeah, it sounded like a good idea to start talking like that. Uh, you can okay. uh, you can also find a link to our iTunes page where you can subscribe to the show if you haven't already, and you can rate and review us, which we'd greatly appreciate. It helps other people find the show. You can also plug the RSS link into whatever other device you need to do that for. Uh, and if I didn't mention already, there's a web player on the site as well if you just want to kind of have it running on a tab in the background while you do your work and kind of listen to us be dumbos for you that'd be fine yeah cool cool um what are you reading next you you intimated that it was not what you in, said on the website that you're reading next i so. ambitiously declared that i would be reading justin cronin's the passage uh i have that book in paperback and 700 pages is a lot thinner in paperback than it is in hardcover. <laughs> uh, so I misjudged that book. and so You bit off a little more than you could chew. Yeah, so I'm working my way there. And it'll, it may not be the, the second book I read from now, but it will definitely be on a future episode of the show in the near future. So that's one to kind of bookmark and maybe start working through. I really like it. Uh, so to speak. Hey-o. Uh, bookmark for like <sighs> books i know god who's on cold <laughs> medicine right now um in the meantime i have read moliere's the misanthrope it is a french comedy of manners uh that we'll be talking it's about a dude who who likes straight talk and doesn't understand why we don't all uh tell each other what we think of each other I think okay. I think you when might. when you say comedy of manners, it makes me think like, oh, isn't it isn't it hilarious that guy put his soup spoon on the wrong side? We'll see you guys next week. Manners. <laughs>
<laughs> okay, everybody, uh, take your cold medicine and try to be happy. <laughs> <laughs>